Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Privet, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. This is probably going to be a pretty short one today. Our story is pretty simple and straightforward, so we'll also use it as an opportunity to briefly discuss the history of Russia up to this point in the timeline. Something I think it's been hard for me to get my head around is the extent of all the culturally and linguistically distinct groups of people that exist and have existed throughout the world. But when communication as we know it today is non-existent and people stayed put in relatively small areas for generation after generation, each little pocket became unique compared to all the others. And I can't begin to try to trace them all as we discuss the course of human history here and even experts don't have all the answers. All, all that is a roundabout way of getting to the fact that the Russians, as a people, come from a group called the East Slavs, from approximately the area of Eastern Europe and Western Russia. There was also influence from Scandinavia and the Mongol Empire, leading, no doubt, to a uniquely Russian culture. Russia traditionally considers its beginning as a nation to have begun in 862 CE, when the Viking chieftain Rurik gained control of a major trading post near modern-day St. Petersburg. He later moved his capital city to Novgorod, which features prominently in our film today. Rurik's dynasty went on to form the first Russian state of sorts in the Kievan Rus. Belarusians and Ukrainians will probably take offense to me calling all this Russian, but I'm oversimplifying. That's, that's what I do. Kievan Rus had its capital in Kiev, the present-day capital of Ukraine. It fell apart under the strain of invasion by the Mongols, and this is a good place to get into today's movie. Alexander Nevsky was born in 1221, just six years before the death of Genghis Khan. And remember that the Mongol Empire continued to grow long after Genghis Khan was gone. Though it's not the Mongols that are the threat in today's film, it's the Germanic Teutonic Knights of the Holy Roman Empire. Here's the opening text of today's film. This was in the 13th century. Drawn by her vast lands and riches, the Teutonic Knights advanced upon Rus from the west. The invaders expected an easy victory. Rus had recently been dealt a cruel blow by the Mongols and still bore traces of the bloody battles. So it's black and white, but we open on a beautiful countryside strewn with skeletons from these battles against the Mongols. A young prince, Alexander Nevsky, is just kind of hanging out with and overseeing a bunch of men fishing at a lake. Nevsky is relatively famous among his people for having previously led some successful battles against the Swedes. There's a group of passing Mongols, and they try to recruit Nevsky to be a general of the Golden Horde of the Mongols. He declines and says he's content where he is. They leave, and an old man tells Nevsky they need to be fighting the Mongols to avenge their ancestors. But Nevsky tells him that first, they need to deal with the Germans. And that battle must start with Novgorod, the last free city in Russia. And let me step in here to note that this movie is from 1938, when Soviet Russia was just a couple decades old, and it was released less than a year before Hitler invaded Poland. It's very, very clear that this movie is playing up Russian pride and animosity against the Germans. So, back to the 13th century. Nevsky was quite young at this time. The battle we're leading up to took place in April of 1242, when Nevsky was just shy of 20 years old. Not 35, which was the age of the actor playing him. Again, they probably wanted a little more gravitas in what is basically a propaganda film. 
The leaders of Novgorod are hesitant to call for Nevsky's aid, and there's apparently some bad blood here, historically as well, that I don't really understand. It could just be like a power conflict amongst nobility. The Germans have just taken out the nearby city of Skov, and Nevsky is brought in to help save Novgorod. The Germans hear about this, and many are nervous due to Nevsky's reputation, but their leaders are confident. And in the burning city of Skov, we see the Germans just casually casting children into bonfires. Yeah, this is propaganda. The movie is also full of what are basically Russian fight songs and calls to arm. On April 5th, 1242, we get the Battle on the Ice. And this is historical. Alexander Nevsky led Novgorod against an army of Teutonic Knights on the frozen Lake Pipus. And of course, the Russians win. They wouldn't have made this movie otherwise. The movie doesn't attempt to hide the human cost of war, but one of the closing songs says, He who fell for Russia has died a hero's death. As this was made in communist Russia, it also plays up the importance of the people and their ability to rise up to help their country. It likewise goes out of its way to put the religion of the Germans in a negative light, while the religion of the 13th century Russians is all but ignored. When dealing with the prisoners at the end, Nevsky puts them in three categories. The common soldiers can just simply be released and return home. Their leaders will be ransomed off. But a Russian traitor who aided the Germans, well, we'll just let the mob deal with him. Alexander Nevsky has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. The original New York Times review from 1939 calls its director, Sergei Eisenstein, the D.W. Griffith of Russia, which seems to be meant only mostly as a compliment. This is actually one of three films by Eisenstein we'll get to on our list. He's basically our best access point into various periods of Russian history. And he wasn't always the dutiful propagandist we see with today's film. He had previously been in minor trouble for work considered less than flattering to the communist regime. And he spent time working on films in the United States and Mexico before eventually returning to the Soviet Union. Looking at the film historically, if, if you remove the biased lens from it, it's not that bad. But it's also not trying to pack a lot of information in. The previous victory against the Swedes mentioned in the film as having taken place like before the film started that gave Nevsky his reputation is historically recorded, but only by the Russians. No, no other parties make reference to it anywhere. The battle is supposed to have taken place at the Neva River, which is what earned Alexander his nickname, Nevsky. After the battle on the ice, Nevsky continued to strengthen Russia's position by treaties with Norway and the Mongols. And indeed, he, he made a decided point to avoid antagonizing the stronger Mongols and basically conceded Russia at the time to be a, just a vassal state of the Mongols and they paid tribute and everything. This could have been done partly in fear of the Mongols, but also partly to ensure the Mongols backed Nevsky's authority in Russia. No one's going to mess with you if the Mongols are on your side. And in 1252, so 10 years after the battle of today's movie, Nevsky became Grand Prince of Vladimir, making him basically the supreme leader in Russia. Though Russia wasn't structured politically the same way we've seen in England and France at the time, there were, there were different leaders in different regions and power shifted over the decades. And when we think of the czars that ruled Russia, that's still another 300 years away. Nevsky died in 1263 and quickly became venerated as a saint, and he was officially canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church in the 16th century. In 2008, a couple different popular polls even named Nevsky the greatest hero in Russian history. The Teutonic Knights were established as a Catholic military order with the goal of aiding Christians during the Crusades, whether protecting pilgrims or fighting in battles. So why are they in Russia? Well, there's actually a series of northern crusades against pagans and Orthodox Christians. And the Teutonic Knights still exist today, though only as a religious institution. Obviously, they're not going around still 
fighting anybody. They award honorary knighthoods and perform charity work. And the film gives us Hermann von Balk as the leader of this branch of Teutonic Knights. But while he did hold that position, he died in 1239, three years before the Battle on the Ice. The nobles of Novgorod, who reluctantly accepted Nevsky's help, were known as the Boyars. I think you can see them as similar to the barons in England. Wealthy people of influence, often ambitious, though often overshadowed and overpowered by royalty. And that's really all I have to say about this film. It was it was surprisingly entertaining and didn't really drag on despite being from the 1930s. And it predates any Oscar category for best film, but it's definitely the type of thing that would have won had that award existed back then. Elsewhere in the world around this time, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II was violently clashing with the Vatican and the Pope. The year Alexander Nevsky was born, the Mongols signed a trade treaty with Venice, which was basically its own republic and independent of Italy for more than a thousand years. The Sukhothai Kingdom begins in what will later become Thailand. And Longshanks, Edward I of England, was born just three years before the Battle on the Ice. And it's to his kingdom that we'll travel next week as we see the Scottish rebel William Wallace be a thorn in his side in the 1995 Oscar-winning film Braveheart. <laughs> 